Hey, everybody. This is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of April 21st, 2022. I am here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about what do you do with an erotic thriller? <laughs> We're going to be talking about where do ideas come from? We've got in tech news a really amazing cloud update from Blackmagic. We've got all that and some Ask No Film School action rounding out this episode of the No Film School podcast. All right. First story this week. Notoriously, the erotic thriller was a a huge staple in like the 80s and 90s. They were a very big deal. Basic Instinct sort of maybe typified the form, but there were many. It was a thing. And then somewhere in the late 90s, for many reasons, the internet being one of them, the erotic thriller sort of died as a mainstream cinematic platform. However, studios are sort of dipping their toe in the erotic thriller pool again, especially with projects like Fifty Shades of Grey making so incredibly much money. People have been sort of more willing to take a crack at the erotic thriller, but it's a more complicated time to try and make an erotic thriller. I think people are much more conscious, first off, about like the experience of making a movie and how everyone involved feels about the process, as they should be, but also like what is the purpose of some of this. And I think the thing that sort of kicked this off is the uh, deep water from Anadarmus and Ben Affleck is sort of a, you know, it's a return to 80s, 90s form in terms of it's an erotic thriller. It's Adrian Lyne directed it, right? Like it's a, it's even a return of Adrian Lyne. Little known facts, Unfaithful, one of like peak period erotic thrillers. I actually owned the car from Unfaithful. I bought it from the art department. So for years and years, I was driving around in the car that if you, if you remember that movie, there's a scene where she's like driving home to the burbs and she's so overwhelmed by lust, Diane Lane, that she turns the car around and like drives on over all these cones. And it's like, that's my car. I own the car. That's funny. But, you know, that, yeah. that one I feel like was actually like end of the. That was sub-genre. the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was the wild bunch of the. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, in some ways it did sort of deconstruct it like wild bunch. I find this topic interesting, I guess, because genre doesn't die. It kind of morphs and changes. It evolves. And a lot of the things we do in one kind of genre for, for years and years and years suddenly starts happening in a different sandbox, so to speak. And I always remember a story that we did on No Film School years ago that had a interactive sort of graphic where you could see the popularity of genres through the years and when they peaked and when they valleyed. And obviously you'd see like the Western going crazy for like decades and then vanish. But then you would see something else like, sci-fi and horror or sci-fi just horror was its own sorry can't put sci-fi and horror together Uh, (laughs) sci-fi was like absolutely nothing and then suddenly you know things like the moon landing happened and and before then there were like rumblings but then boom you know sci-fi forever so i think that what happens sometimes is that the the topics that we're interested in or the mythology we're dealing with just kind of move subtly into a new genre and I think you could make a case that in a lot of ways, superheroes started to deal with some of what was in the Western or some of what was in the you know other things. So I say all that because I have felt that the erotic thriller and the noir are very, very close cousins. 
And sometimes I think when you're dealing with the topics you suggested, Charles, like shifting morals, shifting codes and what's acceptable in what format, you start to see people adjust. And then what was once an overt erotic take might become sublimated and you'll see suggestive, darker things happening. So is it that, you know, Hollywood doesn't know what to do with it or Hollywood to me has decided sort of like, that's not theatrical release material. That's for this format. In the theaters, how do we deal with sex these days? I mean, in a lot of ways, we just don't. You don't, you used to see it all over the place and now you basically don't see it in the theater. Like people don't remember, but Terminator in 1985 has a sex scene in it. What kind of Terminator movie today would have a sex scene, you know? It's it's refreshing to actually only have warranted sex scenes. Like it kind of drives me nuts when I'm watching a sort of action movie and I'm like, wait, 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 we're just stopping for this. Like, let's move on. But if you're playing in the erotic thriller sandbox, which I'd argue now, like the sandbox doesn't exist. We're like playing on the beach here because we're in completely new territory. And I have seen a couple of things that I would, I don't know if this is controversial, but label as erotic thrillers in a way that come from the female gaze. So Promising Young Woman, for example, like that feels like it's exploring this other territory, almost like the flip side of an erotic thriller. Um, Have you guys seen Fresh, directed by Mimi Cave? I've not seen Fresh yet. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. It came out at Sundance and it's on Hulu now. It starts almost in this sort of like rom-com space and then it becomes a totally different story. And I actually got my hands on the screenplay, which is written by Lauren Kahn. And the way that she writes and describes the, and and then it's pulled off on the screen by the director, this idea of sort of like that prickling on your neck when you're, you know, dating in the modern age, it's just like fantastic. And so I think there's this like other type of erotic thriller that we're exploring through this new lens. That's very exciting to me. And it seems like they're being, it's like Hollywood knows how to like label this this feminist gaze of on the erotic thriller that Neon just uh, announced Pleasure, which is, I'm going to butcher her name, but uh, Ninja Thyberg uh, directed it. And that is like all about porn in the LA scene. And, and it feels like it's like just fully embracing what it is. I mean, it really raises the question of, does it still get to be called neurotic thriller? Like if it's not directed by a man and there's not male gaze, like there is that whole thing. I remember reading some interview with Beck in the 90s where he's like, I keep releasing songs that are like by definition hip hop songs, but because I'm white, they're not hip hop. Like no one treats them like hip hop. And I wonder if, if when we make the list of things that define the erotic thriller, one of the definitions of the erotic thriller is male gaze. Like, cause they're like, now that you mention it, there are a ton of movies that I can think of that I'm like, oh, like this has a lot of the elements of, of an erotic thriller. And yet it had a female creative team and, and thus no one thought to lump it in with the classic, uh, erotic thriller. I was actually going to go a whole other way, which is, I think the death of the erotic thriller has a lot more to do with raising clash consciousness than it does with of other available avenues for sexual content. Like I went, when I bought the car, I went and watched Unfaithful, which I hadn't seen. I am a elder millennial as it were. And like the level of comfortability, Michael Douglas's character has achieved by his late thirties in that film is utterly alien to me. No one I know 
has that level of like house in the burbs, comfort, and like owning a Land Cruiser, which was like I, when I bought mine used, it was fifteen hundred dollars, but it had been it had three hundred thousand miles on it from art department miles. Those are hard miles, but like you know, when Michael <laughs> Douglas just bought that car brand new for Diane Lane's character, it would have been an eighty five thousand dollar car. Like no one I know has ever participated in that. And and as I thought back to a lot of erotic thrillers, like there is this like middle class on we of achievement. I have the money I thought I needed to make me happy. And it hasn't I'm now looking for other new thrills that like, it's just non-existent in anyone I've ever met in my generation. And so it's just like, I wonder if there's like such a high level of unrelatability there. And in, I, and the reason why I thought about it is I've only read a, I haven't seen deep water yet, but I've read a couple of reviews and they all mention they're all like, what does Ben Affleck do for a living? He seems to have a lot of money and it's hard to understand what his job is, which is like something that I don't think people would have minded in 1989 because they would have been like, well, I have this job I got with no college degree that pays me enough to afford a house and surely everyone else must have the same. Whereas now we watch a movie like this and we see the house that I can see in the trailer and I'm like, what the fuck? Where did, how did that money come from? From where? And on top of that, I feel like there's also this through line specifically of Michael Douglas being in all of these erotic thrillers. It was Richard Gere in Unfaithful. Oh, oh my it, apologies. But it might as that, well that, have been right. No, yeah. that, is a, that is a good <laughs> distinction, though. That is a good distinction. Those are, yeah. I mean, it is indicative that I remember Diane Lane best of all, where I'm like, oh, Diane Lane is so good in that movie, Driving My she Car. Is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yes. I think you're onto something there, actually, because I think that idea of there being some ennui or dissatisfaction or just time to explore these things, because I think that in a lot of ways, coupledom has been redefined in terms of what survival looks like for a generation like millennial, even Gen X and, and below, where it's more like dual income household style. I think so much of the erotic thriller is kind of like like all the pieces are set. So now eyes wander and people don't like, I just, I don't know that that's the, as, as common as a state of mind, but the erotic thriller that doesn't involve a sort of a, a couple set of somehow of some kind. Um, and I'm careful, I'm saying carefully just because I think we've blown up so many of the expectations of, of what any, how any of these things are defined anymore which is a good thing. But to me, the idea of it being a, like you said, standard kind of, well, maybe it's a wealthy couple and the kids are gone and, or there aren't any. And 
someone's retired and someone's never never really had a career on, and and then these kinds of things enter into play where i don't see people having the time yeah <laughs> like that's a, like like that's a joke i hear a lot about people my age range a little younger a little older is like who would have the time no i have a friend who's polyamorous and she likes to say that the only, uh love is infinite but calendars are finite and <laughs> and she's like it's mostly people with ca- uh, scheduling kinks end up polyamorous and i'm like oh okay yeah i don't i don't have a scheduling kink like i'm not interested in it for a bunch of other reasons but like how does anyone have time to date multiple people is like utterly baffling to me so like i watch the deep water trailer and i see he has kids and i see like they're having big parties where everybody comes over to the house which like who's doing that but like all right rich people fine you're having these big parties but like (laughs) Like, who's doing the kid pickup? Like, when is that happening? Are there after-school <laughs> activities? Does the kid have swim lessons or dance lessons? Like, what is going on? How is this all happening? And it's also one of those things of, like, I think the erotic thriller also depended upon a vision of manhood that involved the dad being pretty damn checked out. Like, there was okay. no expectation that the dad was doing the school pickup or the recital, which is one of the big problems I had with Uncut Gems, was there was this, like, fetishization I mean, it's weird. It's This is the most middle-aged comment I could ever make. But he just seemed like such a shitty dad. And I was just like, <laughs> I, I'm just not with it. Like, it's he's at his, like, daughter's school play, and he can't even hold it together for that. He's just like, the shittiest guy all around in a lot of ways. That yeah, but then the being the shitty dad thing, it was really like, uh, like, as a character in a screenplay, if they can pull it together just for their kids and they're shitty in every other way, I can usually stick with it. But once they're a shitty dad, I'm out. It's just like, come on, this is like the easiest thing to do. Just like participate in your child's life. It is not hard. I think anyway. because I'm not a dad yet, I didn't feel that way. And I was like with him, even though I hated that he was doing it. But I think once I become a parent or a dad specifically, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, maybe I, I'll you could be a daddy. Yeah. <laughs> I did just go to a dad themed 40th birthday party. So, which I don't know if I'm allowed to bring up a segue, but that kind of, is no, I mean, one of the questions, say, everyone can segue. One of the no film school questions was about is 40 too late? And I wonder if we could chat about that. Yeah, all right, we can move on to that. Um, also, the reason why I mentioned you could be a daddy is the wonderful podcast, Why Are Dads? The end of which everyone is always discussing who in the movie they're discussing is the daddy. Uh, um, so it is, it is, it is sort of a general movie. If you haven't listened to Why Are Dads, which is now called You Are Good, which made the bold decision to change the name of their podcast, they're always looking for who the daddy is in a movie. <laughs> and it's it's usually not who you expect. I love that. So I was th- I I was specifically thinking like you could be the daddy in the movie, ah. which is a different animal. Regardless, I'm just making it deeper and deeper here. So being um, forty, no, I mean being forty, is it too old to be a dad? No. Is it too old to have a dad themed party? No. Is it too old to start a career? That's the next question. <laughs> so yeah, I don't have the email open in front of me because we were going to do this in a second, but we got a reader who asked, and it was actually an interesting question because they were, uh, they basically said, look, I'm, I'm sort of media adjacent working in video games, but I'd, lo- I'd rather move over into narrative movies and I'm about to be 40. Is that too late? And um, I mean, it's too late if you're obsessed with having your IMDB profile match PT Anderson's. Uh, and having your first feature at 26. But for the rest, like there is no too late. It's just a matter of what trade-offs you are willing to make on the journey. The problem is, is that the film industry has a very problematic behavior of expecting everybody to start from scratch, even if you have like medium level experience outside. 
So I know so many people who like, and this is more common of people I know around 30, 35, but I'm sure somebody I know at 40 has had this experience who are like, oh, and I, and I, sh- and I'm still going to go work as an assistant on a desk for a year or two. And that's still sort of the expectation is that to get your start in the industry, you've got to get to know how we work and you, you start that way on the bottom of the totem pole job. And in fact, I know one person who produced some movies and then for personal life, life reasons sort of blew everything up. And in his mid forties, went back to assisting on our desk for a year because he knew that was his way to start over and get back in. So like, you know, it was a hard year for him. His ego really stung. It was complicated and difficult, but it was nonetheless a sort of valid move. So like, yeah, 40 is not too old, but if you've already reached like middle or middle upper management in your other career, you will be flabbergasted at how annoyingly film would like you to start right back over at the bottom. Yeah, I I had a passing interest at one point in my journey. I thought about maybe I'd like to be in development and I was curious about exploring it. And I met with people I ha- happened to know pretty well who were pretty high up on that totem. And there was a real sad, like for me, sad, but just like, yeah, look, I mean, unless somebody's just going to hand this to you, which you know is not going to happen, you're going to ha- probably have to be an assistant if you want to be in that particular thing. And I was like, that doesn't sound appealing to me. And I was younger than I am now, obviously, quite a bit. So, and I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that again. So I think part of it has to do with a preference on what you want your life to look like every day. Because... There's another, I thought you were going to start with this, Charles, and so I'll throw it in there too. It's also like, how much money are you used to having coming in every week or month? Because yeah. if, if you've reached a certain point in your career where you are earning a certain amount and you're living a certain lifestyle, there's two really tough things about the, that age is not, should not be, and I want to preface it by saying like, there's no reason, there's no reason that 40 is a reason not to anything. Yeah. I believe that. But the two things that I was going to say that become where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, are how tired are you going to be? Like, how much energy do you have? How much space in your life do you have? And also, how much are you willing to give up cash flow? Because what I recall is that you will move faster if you do uh, in the early stages of like, say your decision is like, I want to be, you know, I want to learn how to be a cinematographer at this point. Well, you're going to have to take a lot of tough, long hour jobs on sets and meeting people and not making much money. And are you game for that right now at 40? Because I'm not, I'm 40. I'm not. <laughs> but I, like, so like, but you might be like, if you have the energy for that and you have the motivation, like I'm impressed. I have the energy and motivation for other things, but not that. At this point, to me, that's kind of the, those are the decisions you have to make. The age itself could be immaterial. It's really like, what's the bandwidth you have? Yeah. What are you willing to give up? Is there enough money set aside that that's not a concern? Because that would be nice. It's also, I think, a, a good time to remind people that like all that matters is the quality of the work. So if you take uh, two months off your job, and this is going to pivot in our next conversation. So we're going to just keep leapfrogging here. <laughs> if you take six months off your current job and you write a script that is so good, it doesn't matter. Like if, if, if you go out and you just write a phenomenal magic script, you can get it sold, you can get represented, you can get moving and age doesn't matter. And somebody I follow on Twitter was just like, 
you know, I didn't start writing until I was 35 and we just wrapped season one of my TV show. And I think they're in their mid forties now. Like, you know, and it might take a while. The trick is realizing how long it takes to get good enough to write something that good. I have another friend. He's actually a former student who's like, you know, I've now sold five screenplays and my first 10 screenplays didn't sell. And and he likes to say that. That's the yeah. hardest part. So as a person who had a totally different career and sort of got to the point where I had the title that people have when they retire and decided to start over, and now I'm in my early 30s, it took me two years to figure out that I needed to go back to basics as I was learning how to write, how to tell a story. And that was a really humbling process. And, and I kind of go back and forth on whether I should go the assistant route. Ironically, I have an interview for an assistant position right after this podcast, or the route of making it on my own and getting those reps in and making sketches and just making things, which is the best way to be learning in my experience so far. So it's like, do you get that exposure in the industry or you do, do you just keep your head down? What is the best way to spend your time? And that's like a a negotiation that I sometimes go back and forth on. It's tough. And I think the thing that was the big learning for me was I used to be a subject matter expert in my previous career. And I had to come in and realize and learn through mistakes that I didn't know what I was doing. Yes, I can talk in a room and and sell people in on an idea for a short but that doesn't mean the short story is going the short film is going to work. And so that was something that I think uh I wish I had had known going into it. You bring up something you had in your in your corner at least it sounds like that a lot of people don't, which is a little bit of humility to accept that they may walk into something and not know very much and have to learn because that that's the ego thing that Charles also referenced about mm-hmm. like can your ego take it if you're at a desk and you're 40 or whatever. Like can it? That's a real question. Really ask yourself that. Because if it can't, you might have other problems to work on. <laughs> but yeah. if it can, you're in good shape. Actually, pretty much always. Like if you're able to set aside your ego and just deal, you're kind of always going to be in good shape. So yeah. I I mean, we should all strive to be that that way a little bit. But like if you can't, that's my opinion. But if you look honestly at it and you're like, that's going to be tough for me to be the one who has no idea and has to ask a lot of questions having gotten used to being a person who feels like they know a lot about what they're doing, that's going to make this much, much harder. I mean, there is the other avenue of film school. And I teach at a film school, and I think film school is incredibly useful at certain points in certain careers. And I think in your email, you even mentioned it. But the beauty of what film school offers you is film school offers you like time to just get better, right? It's two or three or four or NYU, five years of your life where like all you're worried about is getting better. And that's all you're focused on is improving in whatever craft and discipline of the film industry. And that's huge. And if you get good enough in those five years, you can come out and just make such great work that like the connections come to you. But mostly, and I say this as someone who's been teaching in film schools for a long time, it is a combination of having built a robust network and getting good. Because if you've got the robust network, but the scripts you're turning out are still not good enough, then nothing's going to happen. And I have I certainly know people that like, I'm like, oh, you just did 10 years of building that network, but the material you're interested in is still just not biting for people. Mm-hmm. And if you do the work to get good, but you don't have anyone to show it to, that's an easier situation. If you get so, so, so good, you can enter it on the blacklist.com or there's contests. You can find a way. 
if the work is good enough. But it, it takes time you know building if you're both good, networks. Though? How do you know if you don't have a network to pressure test? Well, that's the thing is that like finding a writer's group of people who will tell you when it is finally good enough and who will will reflect back to you that it has grown where it needs to grow. Those are valuable things to do. I do have to say as a film school dropout, being accepted into film school made leaving my corporate job with a steady paycheck much more palatable because people go to business school all the time. So sort of that felt like a way to not just quit my job and start over. I had a little bit of a bridge for that. But this all segues us into our next headline conversation, which is as you're figuring out what your screenplays are to write, where do ideas come from? And I think it's either Stephen King or Gary Larson had a fun anecdote about how that question always comes up. And they always like to say, well, I have a chest downstairs and whenever I run out of things to work on. I just go open it up and there's a new one in there. But it really goes, you know, and the absurdity of that answer is all about the fact that like, no one really knows, but a lot of different people have developed a lot of different strategies to try and help with the ideation process. Gigi, do you want to talk about why you wanted to bring this up? Yeah. So I just came back from the first ever writing lab that I experienced, uh, the Her Arts Film Lab, which was based in Italy. So I got to eat a lot of pasta and work on my script with people who are dedicated to helping figure out the idea or f- break the story essentially. And I've never. That just in, sounds awesome. It right? was All, so, just alone. That's pretty cool. It was so cool, guys. And I can't wait for the day that I have a nine to five that is to fully focus on working on the story. So, this was my first experience with that type of support if that makes sense. We had two mentors who were coming from writer's rooms and coming from the festival world. And and we've, I've had this idea for a long time and working through it, I was able to get sort of like that 20,000 foot perspective that helped me crack the story. And I found, you know, most of my time writing has been working alone or working with one other person and getting these like one-off conversations with people and to pressure test an idea. So when it comes to like one coming up with the idea as a former person who didn't work in the industry, I'm very easily excited by the idea of things. So I'm curious how you guys decide what ideas you're going to pursue. Is it a sort of like it clicks, so you open up that chest and you find the thing and you're like, this is it? Or do you spend time deciding if this is the path that you're going to go down? I'm very curious about that sort of early stage process for you guys. It's entirely possible that the person I'm about to make fun of is somebody who we interviewed in no film school, but I'm going to make fun of them anyway. At one point, I was reading an interview with someone and they were like, so here's my ideation process. Every January, I go to this cabin in the woods. I go to the same one every year for two weeks with no internet and no phone. And I just spend two weeks looking at all my notes from last year and I pick what project I'm going to focus on all my energy on this year. And, you know, I was like, well, that sounds fucking great. But, like, I got a daughter who has food she, she needs to eat. And, like, there never been. a dad. Well, but it's like even before I had a wife and a child, like, there was never a period in my adult life where I was like, I can just take two weeks off and go to a cabin alone. Like, I, you know, when I had my production company, I took one vacation in five years. And wow. it was great. But, like, you know. Like we were busy, there were jobs. I was trying to build a thing that would do stuff that, you know, and the company just won an Oscar last year. Like it, you know, 
built the company and did things with it. But like the idea of like that idea just sounds so ridiculously luxurious to me that I was like, well, that's that is stuck in my mind years later, that interview moment where I was like, all right, well, great for you. But what about the rest of us? For me, what tends to happen is there's usually something like, look, usually you've got like four or five things in the hopper at any given time. So what I think your question ends up being about, it's very rare you have like one thing that you're working on at a time. Usually you have like a couple of things you're outlining, maybe one thing you're doing a draft of, you've got like a bunch of balls in the air. And so the question is really about like, okay, it, like it's supernatural for me if like I finish a draft on one thing and then I look at some of the outlines I've been working on and I'm like, oh, I feel like this outline's finally ready. And then I start drafting on that or whatever. So the big thing is like, how do I decide what goes in the pipeline? And for me, the way my process has, has worked is it tends to be very much about the steps in the process. Like I'll have an idea and I'll be like, all right, well, can I write like a page of it? Like, can I write a treatment? Like, and I'll just try doing that and being like, what are the beats? And then I'll come back to it and then I'll come back to it. And if it can grow into a real outline, like I'm never ruling any idea out. I have a big spreadsheet of all the ideas I have. And then, you know, every once in a while I'm like looking at that spreadsheet and I'm like, oh, I think I could open that treatment back up. Like there's many iterative stages of like messing around with ideas before I even try and write anything in a script form is the way I tend to work. Yeah, I agree that it's the time thing. I remember reading something that that's familiar to a lot of people and their journeys, but this is the version of it that stuck with me was that Lawrence Kasdan, when he was on this absolute tear of great scripts at that period of time, like kind of right before he burst on the scene, because he had a, a bunch of them loaded in the chamber and ready to go. But mm -hmm. like when he burst on the scene and there's this thing, like he was writing ads by day. He had kids, he had a family. He was working at an ad agency or something like that. I'm, I may get the details wrong. But then he would come home at night and like write his scripts all night. And I just remember thinking like, oh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just like, I don't have that in me. I feel like that's my refrain for this whole podcast. Like I'm becoming, <laughs> but I was like, I've got to be honest with myself. Like I'm not that guy. Like I'm not going to be able to do that. And it kind of was a bummer because that's a romantic idea of what, what it takes to right, make it, right. you know? And I think that then what I realized is like, for a long time when I wrote and had, I guess, I guess you could say some success, but I, when I was writing, it was, I treated it like my day job and that allowed me the space. I've heard a lot of people on screenwriting Twitter, which is a weird place. I don't advise anyone do anything on Twitter, but if you're interested, there's a lot of Twitter on screenwriting. I strict screenwriting on Twitter. And people talk a lot about that, like feeling of what did you do all day, honey? And it's like nothing on the page and stared out the window and, you know, that, <laughs> that aspect of writing. And I think that, that, um, that's also a huge part of it. It's a big corral, the experience, and it's a lonely one often. And yeah, I mean, talking about ideation, here's my problem. I have always had no problem having tons of ideas. In fact, right. sometimes I wish I could just turn that off because I don't want to do anything <laughs> anymore. Yeah. But like, so I kind of have a different problem where like ideas don't leave me alone. Execution was something that I just didn't have the willpower or, or, or love the process really. But ideas were never the problem. Now, I think that's very different than saying like, how do you take an idea and turn it into something viable that you can, that you can execute? That might be the, the piece of this. But like to me, ideas are the fun part. They're everywhere. Where do ideas come from? I just feel like there's a never ending 
supply in the world, in history, in events, in other movies, in people. Like it just seems like it's it's like a flood. But the the part of turning something into something that's going to work that you can work on for a year or whatever. Oof, yeah, that's rough. And workshops, it's just a shame that it's that it's so hard to make it a job, really. It's so hard right. to earn enough at it for it to be a job. And it's hard to feel culture at large is so results heavy. So that's why a blank page is like, well, you didn't do shit today. You might have kind of, but you don't feel like it because we don't talk, we don't value process. We, we value results. Right. And it's a very, very, look, screenwriting in Hollywood. Like if you're going to pick like a tough road, that's, that's the tough road in terms of like a career path. Like, cause even when you're doing it really well, you're not often getting a lot of credit or many breaks. Like, so right. it's, it's a tough one. The thing that is really important for me to say is just because you can't take two weeks off and go to a cabin in the woods doesn't mean that you should stop writing. For me, the advice I've always given is you have to figure out your window. Like Elmore Leonard famously wrote for an hour a day before he went to work in his, mm-hmm. in his insurance office. And it was one hour a day and it was before work because that was the time that worked for him. I can't write at night. I never have. Even in grad school, people would be like, we'll meet up at the coffee shop at like 10 o'clock and we'll write. And I'm like, at 10 o'clock, I am drunk or asleep. I'm not <laughs> writing. I don't like, I'm just not like that. But other people are. I am a morning writer. And like I now, I work a bimodal day where there's two hours every morning. It's in my calendar. It is carved out. It is writing time. I don't check up. I don't open the email. I don't open anything else. It is my time to work creatively in the calendar booked. You can't do it. You have to know yourself and when it fits. And it's probably more useful to have that time than it is to have two weeks in a cabin alone in the woods. So I'm just saying that sometimes when people talk about their ideation, I can have a little bit of like, oh, well, you know, go fuck yourself. But <laughs> I, I still think it's possible to try and carve that time out. I think that this week-long lab where I, I felt like I got to create the space to, to work on a project. And usually I'm like you, Charles, I'm like two hours in the morning as I drink my coffee, pre-checking email, which is like a precious time. And only in the last six months have I discovered that and been able to like protect that time for writing. And honestly, a lot of this has been coming back to, is it too late or am I too old to, to make this leap? A lot of this process has been unlearning the sort of output value nature of working in a corporate environment and knowing that that blank page and that staring out the window is incredibly important time for your creative process, at least for me. And and I used to have a lot of anxiety around it as a compulsive scheduler, as a person who has anxiety if there's a single email in my inbox. And 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 so I also had to like give myself space to let some other things fall off. Like I, I, I can't be writing and putting that energy and also, you know, having the same output that I had when I was working in media. No, you cannot. <laughs> I mean, the biggest gift that I've gotten from the boomers is accepting that there's a lot of emails I just don't have to reply to, which is something that like when I first started my job, I felt like, okay, well, I have to chime in or I have to do whatever I have to, you know, demonstrate my value. And now there's like, so many emails where I'm like, I don't have to say anything, so I won't. I love that. And like, that that is such a gift from the boomers. I will take that gift from you and use it. They have some things to offer. I can be an honorary boomer for this cast. (laughs) You called yourself an elder millennial and an honorary boomer so far on this podcast. I think 
me and Charles are technically elder millennials. Yeah, because we're too late for Gen X. Because it's a technical thing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the elder millennials, full of Because it has meaning. Yeah. I'll take I elder. I'm fine with elder millennial. I totally relate more to millennial memes than Gen X memes. I was like just barely in high school when Kurt Cobain killed himself. So I, I don't think I'm quite Gen X. I don't think it counts. Regardless, moving on to tech news. So last week was tech news heavy as a bunch of people rolled out stuff that normally would have been NAB updates uh, two weeks early. This week, we already have something that would definitely have been NAB in years past, but because of COVID and the world changing, it's a week before NAB, Blackmagic has dropped their cloud solution. And all of you who are thinking, oh, I can go to sleep now. I hope you don't if you're driving. But also, it's really exciting cloud shit from Black fucking Magic. Um, now, look, I'm a partisan. I've been using Blackmagic professionally since like 2009. I cut and resolve. I teach resolve. I am a fan. But I'll also admit their flaws. They've been a little later to the game than everybody else on cloud. So when I first saw that that's what the presser was going to be about, I was like, fuck yeah, you're bringing it. And then they brought it and they like really brought it. So first off, their whole thing is they're against subscriptions because they're like, subscriptions are dumb and rude. Like they make your customer not like you because you keep having to pay over and over and over. And like, let's say you work on a documentary for like five years and then you spend a year off from it. Are you then going to have to pay to get access to your files again? Which yeah. is what like you have to do with like the subscription software. Which Final Cut Pro 10 is not subscription and Blackmagic is not subscription. And they were like, okay, so we wanted to figure out a way to do cloud with no subscription. And uh, their model for everything else is always hardware. Like eventually, if you're making enough money using the software, you have to buy some hardware to do something cool. Like you need video outputs, you get a DNX, uh, you get a Blackmagic deck link or whatever, or you need monitoring, you get the smart scope duo. If you're making money off, if you're making money, eventually you have to buy the Blackmagic thing. And so they rolled those tools out for cloud and they're sick as shit. So, you know, all the normal cloud stuff is there. Like you create a login and now your projects are stored in the cloud. So like you're working in Resolve and you want to like have someone else in another city work on the same project as you at the same time. You just share it with their user ID and then like they can be color grading while you're editing on the same project at the same time. Super slick as shit, but even slicker. They built these boxes called their cloud boxes, their cloud storage box. And the one none of us could afford, but we might rent sometimes is like 10 grand, but it's like, holy shit, it's all M2 storage, which is very stable, good redundancy as a USB port. So you can download media straight to it as another USB port. So you can back that media up. It's got four 10 gigabyte things. So I can have like four laptops on set. Like one person's managing downloads. One's doing an edit. One's doing VFX all on the same box and it integrates with Dropbox. So it can be making your proxies and kicking them off to Dropbox so that someone else remotely can just immediately start editing. And it's all built on Dropbox. You don't have to like get another cloud subscription. It's like, it's really the thing. It's really so like motherfuckers. to hear. It's like, yeah. sounds so satisfying that it's all just streamlined. But it's like 10 grand. So most of us probably won't buy it. It's like for like the little, if you're a post house with five suites, 10 grand's not a big deal. And those people will buy it. They also make a little three grand box called the Cloud Mini, which is I think going to be the really popular thing, which is like, you know, you can't have as many people plugged into the same thing at once. Like I'm doing a job this June and I'm totally like, shit, should I just buy a Cloud Mini? Because then it's faster downloads on set. It can download to itself, which is nice. You don't have to like tie up a machine doing it. It's cool. They've also like fixed a whole bunch of cool stuff in Resolve. There's some new color grading tools, but the real thing is that they just made the like, they just did it. 
And because it's black magic, the prices will scale. So in a year or two or three, maybe normal people will also be able to get the cloud. But like they knew, you could tell when he was doing the press release, he was like, okay, so these are a little pricey, but we also have this. And I was like, you know, 10 grand is actually a lot. It's not a lot for what it is, for what it offers. It's a very reasonable price, but it's a little, it's a little steep for the indie filmmaker. But I think you will start to see some of the cloud minis on sets soon. Like I was just about for a job I'm doing this summer to like buy the parts that that turns into and try and like put one together myself on other world computing. I'm like, they're just all wrapping it up in a box. It's pretty slick. So yeah, that's tech news. I think that's it for today. Did we manage to come in under time and under budget? Yes, we did. <laughs> Bring that. All right. Well, I'm on the internet at charleshane.com, H-A-I-N-E, and Twitter and Instagram, H-A-I-N-E. Check it all out. Yeah. Oh, and I'm doing youtube stuff lately, so check that out too. I'm at Lost in Graceland on social media and ggHawkins.com. And I'm at George Gentleman on Twitter. And you can find everything we talked about today and more at nowfilmschool.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our Instagram and YouTube channels. We will be bringing you lots of NAB coverage next week, so be sure to tune in to all our channels and our website for that. And this podcast, we'll be talking about things that are dropping at NAB in Las Vegas, where a lot of the cool gear and tech happens and is revealed to the world. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.